Alright. Oh yeah, let it rip. Uh-huh. Get down, get down, get Take two step now. Shake that booty. Take two step now. With the funk. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Feel it. You're listening to 90.3 FM. Don't touch that dial. Ooh, that's groovy. Oh yeah. Hi, I'm Nancy, broadcasting from CKUT 90.3 FM. If you just caught yourself swaying, tapping, or bobbing your head to the beat, you are not alone. In fact, it's a natural response. As Hank Young Honing would say, humans are musical animals. But why do we have this tendency to groove down to the music? Why does music even exist? For today's segment of Scientifica Radio, I sat down with Hank Young Honing, a professor of music cognition at the University of Amsterdam, to talk about the origins of music and the biological processes behind what make humans musical animals. Honing's research has focused on different aspects of music cognition, beginning his career at the intersection of music and technology, applying artificial intelligence techniques to the formalization of musical knowledge. Over the years, Honan became a strong advocate for interdisciplinary research, helping develop the cognitive sciences of music by starting a research group at the University of Amsterdam, crossing the fields of musicology, psychology, and computer science. Honing is now collaborating with researchers from a variety of fields to investigate the biological bases of music. This past year, Honan edited a special issue of Philosophical Transactions entitled Biology, Cognition, and the Origins of Musicality. In this issue, Honing explores the origins of music and musical behavior by investigating the phenomenon of musicality. Musicality is a term that we've been starting using now in the last decade, I would say, to label uh, the capacity for music or, or the predisposition that we all have for music. Like we have a predisposition for language, we can all learn language, it spontaneously develops. And I think musicality is a similar thing for music. We can all enjoy music and listen to it. If you, if you focus on the perception, and we think that there are some cognitive and biological constraints that make us musical animals, that makes us appreciate music. And we're interested in what those elements are. As a musician, this notion of musicality, a naturally spontaneously developing trait that gives us a predisposition for music, is extremely alluring. As Honin mentioned, this capacity is constrained by biological mechanisms, meaning that our ability to perceive music is a result of certain functions and limitations of our brain and body. Although some non-human animals exhibit behaviors that could be classified as musical, such as bird song and whale song, none possess music or musical behaviors nearly as complex as humans. As such, there are many different and opposing theories that seek to explain how and why Humans have music and a unique ability to listen, appreciate, and connect to music in the way that we do. Some believe that music is a biological adaptation in which genes have evolved specifically to create and perceive music. An adaptation represents a change in the structure or functioning of an organism that makes it better suited to its environment. It's a process that adds to an individual's survival or reproductive value. Other researchers disagree with the adaptationist theories arguing that music has no substantial survival value for our species, and that music and musical abilities are not special, but simply take advantage of pre-existing general cognitive and motor capacities. Music researcher Steven Pinker famously characterized music as auditory cheesecake, 
an exquisite invention that ultimately has no evolutionary value and is nothing more than a byproduct of other adaptations, such as language. I asked Honin to elaborate on these theories of music evolution. To say something about the origins of music or the evolutionary origins of music is, is very difficult. And some people even say it is impossible. <laughs> we should give up. <laughs> uh, simply because music doesn't fossilize and our musical brain also doesn't fossilize. So we find very little, if no traces of music in the, in the far uh, uh, past. And there is still lots of disagreement. Some people say, well, music is just around too short. It can't have had any influence on our perception. It's, it, it must be a byproduct of some other more important things for us as humans, such as language, for instance. Uh, but there is another group of people who are still looking for this adaptive cause, see if there you can make an argument why we as humans survived better as a group because we had music. <laughs> And um, yeah, and those arguments are not always as convincing. So it is a very, it's quite a difficult uh, 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 case to make. And there, there is, uh, there is a collection of theories, from ranging from music is important for social cohesion, and therefore we as a group are were more cohesive as another group, and therefore we survived. There are people who argue that it is very important for the 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 parent-child bonding that's very important because the children human children are born too early and we need some kind of emotional language and maybe that is the origins of music referring to that but again all these theories are uh yeah speculations it's hard to progress from speculation because of the lack of fossilized evidence of music and of our musical brain to address the critique that the origins of music cannot be studied Honin and his colleagues propose an approach to study the evolution of music termed the multi-component perspective on musicality. Yeah, the, the, the idea of a, of a multi-component notion of musicality is a strategy and it, it's not something I invented myself. It was a collaborative effort of a whole group of people that I invited uh, uh, thanks to this uh, Lorenz Fellowship uh, two years ago or three years ago now. Um, and this strategy is uh, that in order to say something about the evolution of music, you first have to identify what musicality is and what are the components of musicality. And if you then compare these components in different animals, genetically close animals, like for instance other primates or more uh, genetically distant animals, like for instance birds or sea animals, then you can say something like, yeah, if we share that with a species which is genetically very close, you can say something about their common ancestor, about the history. So the trick is, uh, is to sort of study musicality, whatever that is, because that's still also a debate. And we share it with another animal. You can trace back what might have been the original uh, origins of that particular trait. And then especially in animals that are genetically f uh, distant from us, that can reveal something about yeah, what was the conditions for that particular animal that they had the same resolution for the same problem. How did they arrive at this particular musical skill? So that's the strategy that we, that we agreed upon with a group of, 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 of scientists ranging from psychology to, to biology and neuroscience is to sort of look at some specific animal models that we know a lot about, that we have the methodologies to study, that we know how their perception works, and then see if we can sort of identify some components of musicality and then see in how far we share that with this other animal. And, um, and that is what we propose in this particular uh, special issue uh, of uh, the philosophical transactions. 
of biology. So what are the core components of musicality? The distinct functions that underlie our ability to perceive music? To demonstrate one in action, I'm going to play you two audio clips. Pay close attention to how well you think the notes in each clip sound together. Most people would say that the first clip sounds better or more correct than the second clip. We hear this distinction because we place different levels of importance on certain tones in a musical scale. The tones that are more important or stable in a scale, like the tonic or root, sound like they fit better. One of the reasons the second excerpt sounded bad is because it contains unstable tones, which is something we don't usually hear. This is a process that falls under tonal encoding of pitch, a proposed core component of musicality. During our conversation, Honing described two other fundamental mechanisms of musicality. Yeah, from all the debates that we had uh, uh, with this group of scientists, uh, there was a lot of disagreement, actually. <laughs> but there were two components I think most of us agreed upon. Uh, and if I, I tell you those components, you would probably say, well, well that's very trivial. That's precisely the point. <laughs> and one is called relative pitch, and the other one is called beat perception or beat induction. Uh, relative pitch is, is what we all can do as humans, which is recognize a melody independent of the pitch height. If I sing a particular familiar song to you, higher or lower or slower or faster, you will recognize it, and that's, that's trivial. Uh, that turns out to be a very special skill. Uh, for a bird, for instance, uh, a melody that's slightly higher is a different melody. That's a different bird. <laughs> so we agree that that might be an important aspect of uh, musicality in listening. And we all as humans recognize that. It's the fun of listening to music that you, you hear this, the variations. We make relations between patterns. That's what we like. That's sort of a, that's the fun of listening. And that's in the melodic domain. And in the rhythm domain, uh, the skill that we agree upon is uh, beat perception. It's also called beat perception or synchronization or rhythmic entrainment, the different terms used for the perceptual skill that if we perceive music that we can perceive the, s the speed of it, but also that it speeds up or that it slows down or that we can dance to it or that we can clap to it. Um, it seems to be a very uh, early developing skill. Infants, if they see music on the TV, they already automatically they have to move. Eh? So there is apparently a strong link also between the motor system and the auditory system. Um, and this skill... Um, called uh, beat perception is I think um, yeah I think uh, we know now yeah about musicality that's the most um, uh, the skill that we know uh, best at the moment we have m the most evidence a lot of researchers are trying to 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 study that particular skill in in monkeys in uh, in sea lions in uh, uh, parrots in cockatoos By teasing apart the different processes that allow us to understand and create music, the multi-component model provides a much needed detailed and specific approach to study music evolution. But the emphasis on studying these functions in non-human species raises concerns for me. My concerns surround the validity of animal studies. By validity, I mean whether or not the results of studies that investigate musical behaviors in animals really represent the true functioning and natural behavior of that animal. Curious, I asked Honin about the limitations of animal research.
to be blunt, I think all experimental methodology or behavioral uh, biological methodology, they all have their restrictions, of course. They're all in a particular setting and, um, and often in a lab setting. So, for instance, there is another important study by, um, about Ronan, the Californian sea lion, who also can synchronize to music. So that's another evidence of an animal that can do that. But that animal synchronizes to Earth, Wind & Fire, and Snowball synchronizes to the Backstreet Boys. And I think that's, that's not a very ecologically valid phenomenon. The interesting thing is that the animals can learn that, that they can actually, so they're able to pick up what is important, what's not important in order to synchronize to, to sound. Uh, but it's, of course, ecologically, not very ecologically valid. So, so you, you have to also have to study, and that's what the biologists stress, uh, like uh, what could be the function of that particular skill in their environment, or is it mm -hmm. just a byproduct of something else that we are over overseeing? So it is not that literal. So you shouldn't take these these examples as too literal. Look, they they like earth, wind, and fire, and therefore they're musical. No, it's that's too simplistic. They are capable of and training to sound in some way. And apparently, in a way that they like, both Ronan and Stobol, the cockatoo and the sea lion, they enjoy this, which is also also gives a clue eh, that it might be a social thing. That it's why why does synchronizing to music give these animals pleasure, and also humans? Eh, it gives pleasure to humans. We like that. We like to to dance to the music. We like it mm -hmm. gives us energy for some reason. It makes us empathic. It even it seems makes us more pro-social. It seems so. That suggests a function. Of, of entrainment in general. And that's what we're sort of uh, looking for in, uh, in these uh, uh, human and animal studies. Although the thought of sea lions dancing to funk makes me really happy, it does not convince me that we can make sound conclusions from these studies. My skepticism of music as an adaptation and of music evolution research revolves around the ability to draw conclusions from animal studies. Although some animals show similar musical behaviors to humans with respect to song and drumming, there are substantial differences in the functioning and abilities of these behaviors. For example, birds may exhibit song, but they perceive pitch in a very different way than humans. Birds process pitch absolutely, where each note is understood independent of the others, while humans perceive the pitch of notes relative to other pitches. This is the concept of relative pitch Honan mentioned earlier. The reason that if we play the same tune higher or lower, it sounds the same to us. Researchers get excited by the prospect of animals possessing musical abilities. Take the example Honan brought up earlier of Snowball, the cockatoo who was found to be able to synchronize to a beat. Although he displayed bouts of syncing up to a beat, it was interspersed with longer episodes of unsynchronized dancing. Not to mention that he could only synchronize when the beat was close to his natural rate of rhythmic motor activity. So yeah, this shows us that Snowball can learn to synchronize, but how much can this seemingly artificial behavior tell us about human functioning or how music has evolved? During the interview, Honan passed on some words of advice that really stuck with me. And some people, especially uh, Bob Lewontin from Harvard University, was very, uh, uh, very clear in that. He said, uh, you can't make science about everything. Tough luck in this case. Give it up. <laughs> you can't make science about everything. This really sums up my thoughts on the evolution of music and musicality. Maybe, just maybe, researchers are asking questions in places, or in species in this case, that don't need to be answered. 
Maybe music is just auditory cheesecake. Interested to know Honan's opinion, I asked him straight up, do you think music is an adaptation? If I'm honest, over the last few years, I've been going from one camp to the other camp. I started like it must be an adaption because it's so important. It's so clearly linked to our biology. So it must have an evolutionary origin or cause. Um, but that's of course, uh, and Steven Pinker is right in that. If something is important, it does not need to be an adaptation. <laughs> Fire is very important. Uh, it was an invention by humans. Um, it changes our lives in a way that we're still benefiting from, in a way which is irreversible. It changed even our biology, our digestive system. So something doesn't need to be an adaptation to be very, very important and, uh, and have an influence on our biology. So this, for me, music doesn't need to be an adaptation in order for me to be intriguing to study from an evolutionary perspective. Adaptation or not, human capacity for music is fascinating. And as such, there are many other debates that surround this ability. One hot topic is whether the mechanisms that constitute our capacity for music, or as Honan calls it, the trait of musicality, is specific to music, or if it functions as a part of a more general cognitive system used across many domains. Honan shared his thoughts on musicality and whether or not it's specific to music. I might call something musicality, but maybe that's the wrong term because it suggests it has something to do with music. Yeah, I, I think it is somewhere in the middle. I expect it to be somewhere in the middle. I, I would be, uh, it is strange to, that it is really specific to music in the sense that we think of music in our culture in the last hundred years in the West. <laughs> that would be peculiar. Uh, it's probably more, it's something in between of that. It's the sensitivity to intonation, rhythm, and, and, and dynamic uh, stress. That's that's more what I, I would call musicality, and maybe another term could be musical prosody or something like that. And that suggests that it could also be like a preferable or a pre-linguistic stage that is, uh, so musicality can, could actually feed into music. It might, mm -hmm. it, it allows music to arise in a culture, uh, but that might be a more uh, general, um, sensitivity that's useful for more domains including feeding into music and language and that's the most provocative of this position uh, uh, might actually be helping language to formate so it, musicality precedes music and language and that's that's my current hunch the prospect of musicality preceding language and linguistic abilities is intriguing especially because these functions are thought to develop so early on, which is supported by research showing linguistic abilities of infants. Curious, I asked Honan if there is any empirical evidence of musicality preceding language. This is an example that changed my thinking. It is an example of, of uh, research, German research on crying babies. Um, they studied uh, French babies and German babies large groups, I think 30 French and 30 German babies, and they found out peculiarly that these babies cry differently. French babies cry upward in, ge in general, and German babies cry downward in general. Um, we know that babies already, the hearing is the first uh, organ that's, that is finalized in the last trimester of the, of the pregnancy. They already hear their, the sounds in their environment, heartbeat, breathing, but also the language of the parents. 
And these uh, authors, they combined this idea of early sensory information coming in that early and picking up the general patterns of their language. The general intonation patterns in French is upward and in German is downward. So these babies pick that up in the womb already and apparently start imitating that when they are just born. These authors said, well, this is the first evidence of a linguistic sensitivity. But you could equally strongly say, well, this is a sensitivity to music. Because yeah, it's intonation patterns, it's melody patterns, and there's all kinds of evidence that babies recognize melodies, that they remember them even from what they've heard in the womb. But you can actually ma make a stronger case by saying, well, um, the first moment that the baby can recognize a word boundary, then they're, I think they're six months old or five months old. Uh, and actually they use these musical skills of rem remembering intonation patterns to try to figure out the language. So I think that is, could be the argument of saying, well, musicality precedes language in the sense that this music musical skills, in the way I've defined them, are active from, yeah, actually already when the baby's in the womb. And they help learning starting up the language and help figuring out word boundaries nine months later. Um, so I think in a de developmental uh, scale, you could say that musicality really precedes language with these kind of uh, examples. And you could also say, and that was the idea of, of Darwin, that, uh, that also maybe on the evolutionary scale, a similar thing is ha happening. That, uh, so there was something like a musi language or a proto-language or... It's an interpretation of the literature. Yeah. But it's at least equally valid. Uh, uh, if these babies cry in a way that imitates the intonation patterns of the language, it is not necessarily a linguistic skill. It, it, you could equally say it is a musical skill. The results of this study suggest that musicality is not specific to music, a perspective that is also supported by the large transfer effects seen with musical practice. Transfer effects refer to the improvements seen in domains other than music as a result of musical practice. For example, research shows that musicians are better at incorporating the sound patterns of a new language into words and at recognizing the specific aspects of a sound that signal meaning. Whether there is specificity for music or if musical abilities reflect adaptations or not, it's important to realize that these capacities for music are not resolute and that genetic and biological influences represent only half the story. We simplify them now, of course, we make them like a trait that you have or yeah, you don't have. And already Nunes said that this might be have scales of, of and how far you have that. But then in, in music, we see that all of in musics, if you look at musics all over the world, that you see that there is an enormous variety. And this enormous variety is, is, is likely caused by all kinds of social functions and cultural functions. Uh, and that's also, you can also look at that. So in, instead of looking at the structure of musicality, which is what I'm trying to do in, in, in the current research program, you can also look at the structure of music and then look at music all over the world, like cross-cultural studies. And then you see also there are the beautiful studies that appeared in the last uh, few years on that, that you see that there is also uh, similarities that suggest also these two components of relative pitch and beat perception, if you look at the musics, but then with enormous variety. And there are some musics that avoid regularity because that's not part of that, that doesn't fit there for cultural reasons or other reasons. We try to avoid that because it has a certain effect that you don't want to have or you don't want in your culture or something like that. 
so that's interesting to look at. So, uh, so I think they're they're complementary. The study of of the structure of musicality and the structure of music itself. Um, my my fascination at the moment is to look at musicality because that's it's uh, it's sort of uh, it simplifies a, a number of things. Music doesn't just vary at a societal level, but at an individual level as well. Your relationship with music is profoundly influenced by personal factors like experience and exposure, affecting everything from your musical abilities to what kind of music you like to listen to. Honey explained how listeners affect their own perception of music. Uh, listening is not something passive. It's not sitting in a chair and listening to this music and saying, oh, what a wonderful composer or oh, what a great singer. Um, we're all constantly, without realizing it, actively listening and projecting all our experiences on what we're, on what we're hearing. Um, there are wonderful experiments that show that we sort of, that this is an active process. We, 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 we interpret a tone in what we expect that will happen and this tone sticks out if it's unexpected and it is, it, we sometimes even don't notice it if it is, it's, it's very expected. So we use our previous exposure, uh, implicit learning, whatever the cause of, 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 this, of this knowledge uh, actively while, while we're listening. And that's the fun of listening. That's why we hear a syncopation. We pick up the regularity. It's trivial to us, but that's why we hear if somebody is just just too early or slightly late, and we call that uh, that becomes groovy or it becomes mm. jazzy. That's because we have this expectation. We know when it will happen, but then it doesn't happen at that point, and that's what we that's what we like. But if we wouldn't have that expectation, it would be chaos. It would not be exciting. So, listening is an act active is an active thing. Music has implications in the form of expectations that arise for implied events. The next beat, the next pitch. These implied events can vary across society, as well as individuals within those societies. Expectations are formed from past experiences and profoundly affect how a listener hears and enjoys music. I'm going to play you two excerpts to demonstrate the importance of expectation. Pay attention to how the end of each excerpt makes you feel. Most would say the first excerpt had a better or more satisfying resolution. One reason for this comes from the exposure to all the music we've heard throughout our life. It is extremely common that music ends or resolves to the root note of whatever key it is in which was the case of the first excerpt. It is not so common for a music to resolve to the sixth note of the scale, though. The different musical preferences that trained and untrained listeners have is another example of how experience influences expectations and influences music. As Honan said, people tend to like music that deviates from their expectations, but there needs to be just the right amount of deviation, so it's not too chaotic and unpredictable, but keeps the listener interested. More complex musical expectations take longer to realize, so a trained listener may have more complex musical expectations than an untrained listener. As such, trained listeners may prefer more complex music that untrained listeners may not understand or like. Like jazz. These examples all demonstrate how important it is to look beyond the biological processes of music. The musical context itself could even change how you perceive different music aspects. 
I'm going to play you two musical excerpts that end on the same final chord. Notice how much better the chord sounds in one context than in the other. After all of this, I think we can all agree that music and musical behaviors are extremely unique. And not just to humans as a species, but to every individual as well. Our musical capacities are amazing and influenced by our biological and social worlds. So next time you make fun of your friend's music collection or claim to have the best taste in music, remind yourself of how subjective and based off of experience this all is. Although we all have different genetics, experiences, and preferences, I think we can all agree on one thing. That disco will always be in number one. Or maybe that's just me. All right. Oh, yeah, let it Thanks for listening to Scientifica Radio and let the sounds of this groovy music unleash the musical animal in you. Uh-huh. Feel it, baby. Feel it. Feel it. You're listening to 90.3 FM. Don't touch that dial.